inspires me because I feel great. I go to sleep really well at night knowing that I made the most out of the day inspiring other kids to develop an appreciation for the outdoors and for nature and its role in our lives. Episode 328, Scoutmaster and Mountaineer Raithy Burge talks about peak bagging as a metaphor for life. This episode of the Adventure Sports Podcast is sponsored by Action Heat. Action Heat makes the world's best heated clothing. Powered by rechargeable batteries, it's the perfect way to stay warm. Save 15% off your order when you go to action-heat.com adventure. That's action-heat.com adventure. You're listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180 Tech. We talk with adventurers from around the globe to bring you the inspiration and motivation you need to get started in the outdoors or to keep you moving if you're already there. Now here's your host, Kurt Linville. Hello and thank you again for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Kurt here. I've got a great guy to interview today and I love interviews like these because this man has been working with scouts for 17 years and he is a believer in how adventure sports and nature can really help youth especially, but everybody with uh, a better life and a better perspective. His name is Ray Teberge, and Ray was recommended to be an interviewee by Jameson McFarland. And Jameson, thank you for this. This is awesome. I'm excited to visit with Ray today. One of Ray's claims to fame is that he has summited all 48 of the 4,000-foot peaks in the White Mountains in New Hampshire. And he's not just done that alone. He's done that with youth as well. And so I'm excited to hear about mountain climbing and how that applies to life, but the bigger picture is how adventure sports and nature can help all of us in different ways. So, Ray, thank you for coming to be on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Truly my pleasure, Kurt. Glad to be here. Well, Ray, man, where to start? Where to start? Let's uh, let's go back with a little bit of the history. First of all, where are you located? I'm located in Quincy, Massachusetts, about uh, 15 minutes south of the city of Boston. So near Boston, Massachusetts. And mm-hmm. how long does it take you to get into New Hampshire to the White Mountains there? <laughs> uh, it depends what part of the state, but usually two to three hours. It's straight up uh, Interstate 93. So it's a nice, uh, straight route, easy to get there. And uh, it's very exciting to, to wake up in the city and within a couple hours be deep, deeply buried into the National Forest. So what got you interested in nature and adventure sports and mountain climbing? Well, uh, I'd say certainly it started as a youth. I grew up in Maine, uh, so I was a little bit more exposed to the outdoors than uh, I was going to college in Boston. But then when I reached that point in my life where I started having children and they started expressing interest in being outdoors, I was really excited about that. So I would take them to some local parks and take them for hikes around a pond and show them how to do some fishing and map and compass just so that, you know, at six, seven years old, they get comfortable with that, you know, age appropriate activities. And uh, then some friends of ours, uh, one of their sons was involved in scouting and my oldest son uh, got excited about it and asked if we could join and went to sign him up. And uh, the, uh, the leader at that time said, Hey, the good news is your son's in scouting. The bad news is we don't have an, a leader for his age group, mm. but we see you have previous experience. Would you mind doing it? You know, it can't be that tough. It's just your boy and one other. And uh, within 24 hours, I had seven. And uh, within a week, I had 28. And, nice. Uh, I'd say within a month, it became 50. And, you know, certainly part of that was getting the kids outdoors. And the parents were excited to have somebody lead that was comfortable in the outdoors. You know, just identifying basic plants or, you know, uh, fauna and uh, just learning a a deeper appreciation for nature. And then once you get them comfortable with that, then you can continue to challenge them as they get older. And that's really what's led into adventure sports for me. I'm now taking uh, hundreds of kids uh, snowshoeing in the winter, climbing mountains, whitewater rafting, rock climbing, in addition to uh, peak bagging and and some long distance uh, backpacking and canoeing treks. Nice. Very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So why do you do it? Why do you take kids to nature? Yeah. Uh, I won't deny that uh, certainly part of it is selfish. You know, it's it's great for me. It keeps me young. It keeps me healthy. 
Uh, it keeps my uh, life in focus and gives me a chance to get out and appreciate nature. But uh, certainly at least half of it is it inspires me because I feel great. I go to sleep really well at night knowing that I made the most out of the day inspiring other kids to develop an appreciation uh, for the outdoors and for nature and its role in our lives. You know, I think culturally we're just getting too comfortable being indoors on our cell phone or Xbox, PlayStation or what have you. And kids are becoming afraid to go in the outdoors. And that just really concerns me. Um, so I get really excited when I can take kids outdoors and make them feel comfortable uh, about being out there. Actually, coincidentally, just this past weekend, I spent two days uh, deep in the woods with 10 kids doing a wilderness survival course that I was teaching and literally were out there with nothing but what they had in their pots, uh, a lighter, a can opener, and a space blanket. And uh, they slept on the ground under the stars and they learned to appreciate a full moon and making a shelter and, you know, chasing down some vegetation that would be tasty in a tea and what have you. Well, now, how, how long were you out there? Uh, it's Friday night to Sunday morning. Friday night to Sunday morning. So let's call it 36 hours. Is that about right? Yep. And yep. what about food? <laughs> yeah. Um, we did bring some uh, food supplements. You know, it wasn't uh, starvation training. Um, but it did give us a chance to get them focused on, um, you know, finding some chestnuts and uh, some sassafras root, um, uh, making some wintergreen tea. So it's pretty cool. Neat. Yeah. You know, I have long been a fan of uh, foraging for, you know, edible wild plants. But I, I like to do that very respectfully. I want to make sure that I'm not destroying the plants in an area, right? But that right. said, I've never gotten to the point that I could go out there and not lose weight, you know. <laughs> but what we do when we backpack is we'll supplement what we're uh, what we're eating, the food that we brought, with the, the stuff that nature provides a little bit. And in doing so, get something fresh and new and different. And I just think it's a, a great way to interact with nature. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of my favorite memories about backpacking trips in the White Mountains is in June, July, and August going through the berry seasons. Like I remember the months by the berries, you know, when the strawberries come ripe, you know, when the raspberries come ripe, you know, when the blueberries come ripe. And after you've been on the trail for seven hours or something, it's been hot and we've been pounding rocks, you come down into a valley and you find yourself walking through a field of blueberries. Mm. And you never appreciated every single berry you put in your mouth as much as you do at that moment. Right. Um, they're, they're truly just gifts. And uh, it's just really rewarding. Oh, yeah. Well, Ray, I want to get into the specifics of climbing in the White Mountains. But before sure. I do, mm -hmm. I love that your experience in nature has been encouraging youth, you know, to get out there and connect with nature and do these adventure sports. Will you share sure. a story or two with us about some of the kids that whose lives you saw impacted, right, by mm. getting out into nature? I think that would just be really cool. True. Um, certainly one of my mottos that I share, because for me, it's, it's also about youth development. It isn't just about developing an appreciation for nature. It's about helping these kids learn to become leaders and also helping them to find their own potential, to realize their own potential to help them uh, eliminate obstacles uh, when they realize that they put them in front of themselves. Mm. And so sort of the mantra is give every kid a chance. And, you know, so you certainly get your rock star kids, you get, you know, these six or these 10 kids, you just know can, can grind it out. Can they're like Billy goats, right? They can run through the mountains and then I go, okay, kids, how about if we bring Johnny or Susie or, you know, Billy on this trip. And I'm like, oh, not that kid. Oh, he can't. He can't. I go, look, right there, you guys are setting the tone. If you keep saying that they can't, then they'll believe that and they won't. We need to believe in them so they can believe in themselves. And they do. And so on every one of these trips, I'm always trying to bring a new kid to introduce him to backpacking. You know, I, I've been blessed to have enough gear donated to me over the years uh, that you can sit down with a kid who's, oh, I can't, I don't have a backpack, Mr. T. I don't have a, a Nalgene. I don't have this equipment. Not a problem. We can send it to you for the weekend. And if you like it, 
then you'll be inspired to get it yourself. And so we get out there and, you know, maybe the kid's uh, obese or diabetic or, you know, short or, you know, what have you. And uh, I got to tell you, when you climb, when you're climbing up to the summit of a 4,000 footer, certainly in the White Mountains, and I meet a lot of uh, AMC, you know, Appalachian through hikers who are uh, getting near the end, getting near Mount Katahdin, and we ask them, you know, what's your favorite part of the, of the Appalachian Trail been there, like the Smoky Mountains? That's, you know, the very common answer. And we go, okay, what's the toughest part been there? Like, yeah, the White Mountains. <laughs> it's just a pile of rocks. So, that, you know, you, you're sympathetic to these kids. They're teenagers, and they don't have 2,000 miles of experience under their belt, you know, new to this. And But what happens is this climb to the summit becomes a metaphor for life, and you find ways to sort of get underneath them, get under their wings and say, you can, you can, you know. Okay, go ahead. Take a five-minute break. That's fine. But guess what? The answer isn't no. The answer isn't that you've hit a wall that you can't get through. The answer is take a breath. And we're all going to help you do this together. And we start the climb together. And we do this really beautiful thing that I invented. It's called the reverse rollout, where invariably the slow kid ends up in the back, right? You know, that happens naturally. But when we get to the summit, the billy goats, the ones who ran and got there first, they don't actually summit. They stop about 50 feet short of the summit. And they stop and they yield. They move to the side of the trail and we actually summit the mountain in the reverse order that we've been climbing it. So the kid that's at the end, he gets the pleasure and the glory of being the first. Mm, that is really cool. I love that. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Neat stuff. That's neat stuff. So then they learn that all of the obstacles, because once you're at the summit, it all makes sense. You're like, okay, in order to achieve this in life, I have to go through that. And you realize that 80% of the obstacles are mental, not physical. And uh, that you can do it certainly together as a team. Mm. Yeah, that's really fun. Here's here's kind of a, a side question that's related to what you were just talking about. Anything. Uh, when I've worked with different groups going into nature, climbing a mountain or going backpacking or whatever it may be, you know, it, the question always comes up, where's the right place in the hiking order to put the slow person or people where they feel most encouraged and where they're the most successful? If you run off and mm -hmm. leave them then that, obviously that you're not encouraging anybody and there's no leadership involved there. Right. If you put them in front, then they might not actually reach out for their higher potential and, and accomplish as much as they could. So what do yep. you think the right thing is to do? For me, the right thing to do is, is I move them around. I don't think there's any one answer that you can use for the whole day. I think if you peg somebody in a slot for the whole day, I think is when you're setting them up for failure. Um, so you start in the natural order of things which is typically the fast kids out front. And then you start to mix it up in the breaks. You know, you get 50 minutes in, you get an hour and a half in, you start to take some of the billy goats and move them back and take some of the slower kids and move them up. Um, and so that they keep moving up and down in the order. You know, you have a sense, you know how long it's going to take. It's going to take three or four hours, let's say, to summit this mountain. So kind of over the course of that time frame, um, myself as a leader, my job is to move them around and so I'll put the slow kids up front for a period of time and they feel the pressure of the kids behind them. And, and sometimes you'll see a change, you know, and that tells you, okay, they got, they got more gas in their can than they were really leading you to believe. Right. And they just need to feel the pressure. And sometimes it's conversational. Like you, you put them with the right hiking buddy who talks to them and it gets their mind off of the rocks and the elevation climb. And they just get so enthralled in, having somebody that's interested in talking to them, that the time flies by. Next thing you know, an hour and a half has gone by. You've climbed 1,500 feet, and the kid's been been going like the banshee. And you're like, hey, what happened? You, you, you were going like a turtle in the beginning. you know. So you say, look, see, you can really go at that pace. You can mm -hmm. go at a mile and a half, two miles an hour. Um, and that way, you know, we have roles in the column, the navigator. There's uh, the, the lead person. There's the sweep. And so you break it up and you give everybody a chance to have a responsibility and a role in the column. And I think that's the best answer. Yeah, that's fantastic. It And it matters because, you know, the Adventure Sports Podcast is about encouraging people to get out there and have some fun, do adventure sports, right. connect with nature, right. get healthier, find out what you really are capable of, learn something about yourself that you can take back into your everyday life. 
that's what our show is about. And that's what you're doing with these kids. Yeah. Let me underscore that. I, I emphasize that with the kids, you know, I said, it's great that you've climbed the 48, I've climbed the 48 and these others have, I said, but what you should measure yourself by is how many other people have you inspired to pursue the 48? Mm, Yeah. I like it when people look beyond themselves, right? And they realize that they can encourage other people through these activities. Do you have examples of kids that you would say, man, that kid just turned his or her life around because mm. they found out that they could do this or that or the other? Uh, yeah, I'm not comfortable mentioning names. Nope. Uh, but, uh, but certainly um, my the group of kids that I've had the pleasure of leading is very diverse, uh, all ethnic uh, origins, uh, uh African-American, Caucasian, Chinese, Mexican, um, and some of them come from affluent families and some of them don't. And certainly uh, I can think of one boy, uh, fairly heavy set, that nobody believed he could climb one mountain. And he ended up climbing four. And in the process of doing that, you know, realized uh, his potential. And what he wanted to do and, and went off to college uh, to realize his dreams um, and believed in himself uh, because of just specifically the uh, the 4,000 footer uh, experience. Mm, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's neat. I've seen it a lot on the 14ers in Colorado. And I bring up the 14ers for a reason. You know, people say, well, you're talking about 4,000 feet and Colorado's talking about 14,000 feet. But I want right. to make this point. Um, the vertical feet isn't all that different, and the difficulty of the climb is dependent upon each individual mountain, not the altitude, Correct. right? Correct. Correct. Um, granted, when you're when you're above tree line, you need to be acclimated to the altitude because it, it, just the elevation alone is a butt kicker, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, when you're climbing the White Mountains, then you're starting lower. And you've got some crazy rough terrain to get up. And what a lot of people don't realize, Mount Washington has the record for the highest winds in the U.S. Correct. Is that correct? The, the worst weather in the world. And we're not talking yep. about a mountain at 14,000 feet in Colorado. We're talking about the one right there where you climb. So Exactly. It's about 6,500 feet. And they've had over 100 people die on Mount Washington over the you know the history of keeping records which includes people dying of hypothermia in August huh. or July, you know, typically the, the warmest months of the summer. Uh, but when you get, like you said, above that tree line and the wind just starts whipping up there, it's all rocky, barren. You are totally exposed. I, I find what's difficult up there, Kurt, is trails are so rugged. They're so coarse. You can't get a good stride. You can't get a good pace every step you're renegotiating with the rocks right? Uh, and there are no flat rocks. They're all jagged, sharp slate, granite. Uh, and so it's a struggle. Yeah. Very no rooty, rocky, muddy. So uh, I, I mentioned to you earlier about the Appalachian mountain club through hikers uh, always consistently say to me that uh, the white mountains are some of the toughest parts of the entire Appalachian trail from George Maine just because of the rocks and the roots and the mud, just the trails are not in the condition that they're used to seeing, you know, whether it's on the PCT or uh, these other trails that are fairly well-groomed. The White Mountains National Forest is just raw, raw rock and roots. Hmm. Well, I love it that, you know, you don't have to go to Colorado to climb mountains, that you can do that in different places all around the United States. And you don't have to climb to, you know, 10,000 or 14,000 feet to have climbed a major mountain. I think prominence is what we're talking about, really, Ray. Correct. Correct. You know, yep. prominence matters more on a mountain climb than how high the peak is. Correct. And a lot of people Absolutely. don't know the difference, but prominence really means, well, how high is the peak above the the train around it? Right. And that's what, in you know, it, it inspires most uh, beginner mountain climbers is when they see a very prominent peak, then there's that majesty. And it's like, oh, I want to climb that. And that doesn't mm. matter 
you know, if it's a 4,000 foot peak or a 14,000 foot peak, it's the prominence that kind of captures the imagination. And I think that's what determines the challenge of the hike. Exactly. Well, very cool. So what is it like climbing in the White Mountains? We know it's rocky, it's rugged, there's some challenging weather, but uh, what what are the woods like? Uh, yeah, the, the woods are, for us, very classic New England, a lot of hemlock, spruce, and white pine. Um, once you start to break through the edge of the uh, tree line, you really get into the spruces, uh, and then when the spruces get really short, you get down into what's called the crumholts, which are spruce trees. They're kind of spruce bushes that have just been beaten up so much by the cold and the wind that they're twisted. Almost looks like an origami kind of bush right. nestled in between the rocks. Neat. And, uh, yeah. And so the trails have been cut in between those bushes. Uh, they're actually called spruce traps in the wintertime when the snow piles up above these bushes. Because in the winter, you're out there, and it's so hard to see the trail. Um, so you could just be walking along and all of a sudden step on a piece of snow that's on top of one of these spruce bushes or crumbles, and it's just air underneath you, and you could just plummet down uh, to your chest wow. and trying to dig yourself out from the snow. It's very, very dangerous. Hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it's a challenge. You know, you, you get so accustomed to a nice hike in the woods where the trees are marked with a blaze, you know, a red blaze or a blue blaze or a little metallic symbol or something. But when you get above tree line up in the whites, it's just rocks. You feel like you're on top of the moon and you find yourself struggling to figure out where the trail is because you can't see where anyone else has walked before you. You can't see the, the, the beaten down footpath, you know, where it's just mud and there's no grass because it's all just rocks. Um, so fortunately they've, they've built things called carns, which are these stacks of rocks. God bless the trail workers. And they typically try to put a big white stone on the top. Uh, the white blaze is the standard blaze for the Appalachian trail. And the AT runs through most of the white mountains. That's certainly the backbone of, of the hut system and the, the main trails across the presidentials and the, the Pemi wilderness. Um, but it is cool to, to come across these huts on the middle of a uh, mountaintop. Um, there's typically no electricity, but there might be a crew there making brownies. And you meet a lot of Appalachian through hikers and families. Some of them are staying overnight in the bunk rooms. Usually the views are fabulous. And then you find a point where it's time to move on to your, wherever your campsite is. And that may mean you have to drop down 1500 feet, 1800 feet down below the tree line to get to a tent platform and, sleep for the night and then tomorrow morning have breakfast and do it all over again, climb back up onto the ridge line to uh, carry on your way. Mm. It sounds remarkable. And, you know, I have not hiked in the white mountains. I don't know that much about it. So thanks for the description. That's really fun. Sure. My pleasure. Hey, we have a new sponsor on the adventure sports podcast. I'm excited about this one. I've been wondering for a long time when active technology was going to be incorporated with clothing to do cool things. And here's an example. This is Action Heat. Action Heat is a line of clothing that actually weaves heating elements into the clothes. It works similarly to how a car seat is heated except that it runs off a little rechargeable battery pack. And this battery pack can last up to 12 hours on a charge. It can also recharge your cell phone or other devices, so it's multi-purpose. And they have all kinds of options here. Hats, they have jackets, they have shirts, they have socks, they have gloves, they even have undergarments like long johns. Man, they will keep you cozy from head to toe. I can see using this motorcycle riding, riding up the lift at the ski area, watching a ball game. Anytime I need that little extra boost of heat, this stuff really fits the bill. So, Action Heat, you can get it at action-heat.com forward slash adventure. Please do use the forward slash adventure for two reasons. For one, that's how they know that you heard about them from us. For two, it saves you 15%. So how cool is that? Your holiday shopping is done. All you have to do is go to action-heat.com forward slash adventure.
You know, another thing that I wanted to point out there is that, you know, you're on the eastern seaboard, Boston area, and a lot of people think of that as they know that there's wilderness a little bit further inland, but most people think of that as, you know, I'm in a huge metropolis here. I'm in the city. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there are hidden pockets of wilderness everywhere, don't get me wrong, but do you think that the main mindset is, oh, we're city kids? Or do people think, no, we can go out and find nature here and, and, and connect with that? Mm, uh, to be honest, Kurt, I don't know what the majority mindset is because I, I see both. I see and hear both. There certainly is a significant population that says, you know, we're, we're an urban culture and uh, we just do urban parks or we go to the movies or, uh, you know, we hang out in the city streets. Right. Um, but I see a growing percentage of primarily uh, young adults, 20s, 30s, who want more and want to get away from the city on the weekends or a weeknight or uh, even sometimes in the morning want to go for a run. And uh, we are blessed around Boston. There's a huge collection of parks. It's actually called the Emerald Necklace. And uh, uh, Mr. Olmsted was a landscape architect back in the 17, 1800s. And he planned all of these state parks that uh, make a, a circumference around the city of Boston. So I live on the south side in a city called Quincy. And uh, 10 minutes from me is a state park uh, called the Blue Hills. And that is, I think, 8,500 acres uh, and that's actually where I taught that wilderness survival class uh, this weekend that I spoke to you about. Um, this is also the Miles Standard State Forest, which is over 10,000 acres, and that's maybe 25 minutes south of me. So uh, in a very close proximity, you know, you could – if you get up at 6, you could go for a run through the woods and hear nothing but owls and raccoons, occasionally see a deer, get back in your car, go home, take a shower, and head to work and sort of have your dose of nature every morning. Um without having to own a piece of property that's got 8,500 acres in the backyard. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, so we're very blessed. Yeah, that's cool. So logistically, how hard is it for you to get to the the White Mountains? And I know that you already said it's a two- or three-hour drive to get up there, but what about the uh, the logistics of access itself in the mountains? So you pick a peak. Is there generally always a trailhead and a, and a way to go? Or Yeah, there's always a trailhead. Um there's very limited bushwhacking, and the National Forest Service is not a fan of, of the public out there bushwhacking and establishing your own trails. You know, they want you to stay concentrated on the established trails. Right. Um, there are, you know, great maps online. You know, the accessibility of things online is so relatively easy now. And actually, the uh, Appalachian Mountain Club uh, has a great uh, online mapping system where you can plan your own trip. Uh, it'll tell you what the mileage is, elevation gain, uh, what the what's called the book time is, which is the there's a standard formula uh, that's used, uh, you know, two miles per hour plus half an hour per thousand feet of climb, kind of thing that gives you a baseline average, tells you how long it should take you to to get to that destination, and if you want to incorporate huts into that, uh, so you can take a break and maybe grab a lunch that somebody else prepared, great. If not. You could do it totally backcountry and find some beautiful uh, remote fishing pond and do a little fishing or just uh, hanging out, reading a book, or just enjoying uh, the gift of nature. Oh, that's cool. So do you have a resource for our listeners if they want to go to the White Mountains and experience all that? Where do they get information? Yeah, the uh, the White Mountains National Forest has its own uh, website, so I would just Google that, White Mountains National Forest. Uh, and uh, the other reference is the uh, White Mountain Guide Online, uh, which is up by the Appalachian Mountain Club. And I'd actually like to give a shout out uh, to a good friend of mine uh, who owns a bookstore in Lincoln, New Hampshire, which is sort of the, the headquarters city of the White Mountains. And the name of his bookstore and his website is The Mountain Wanderer. Um, Steve Smith is his name, and he's one of the co-writers of the Appalachian Mountain Club guidebook, and he has literally hiked every trail and continues to get out there six and seven days a week, hiking the trails and keeping notes about how the trails have changed or if a trail's been rerouted or, you know, uh, how bad a storm has affected a washout in a trail. 
Um, so Steve has literally written the Bible of the White Mountains. So that's uh, Steve Smith at the Mountain Wanderer in Lincoln, New Hampshire. has his own website, Facebook page. He's right a great, on. great guy, great resource. Very cool. One more question about the logistics of this. Um, access. Sure. Happy to. Yes. So on some of the 14ers in Colorado, you have a long approach. You might hike five miles, seven miles before you really start to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, Snowmass is is the one that's best known for that. It's just mm-hmm. such a long approach. Um, mm-hmm. What is that like in the White Mountains? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there are three notches that cut through the White Mountains. Um uh, Franconia Notch, Crawford Notch, and Pinkham Notch, and because of those notches, the the parking lots that you park in, and generally the parking lots are three dollars a day or five dollars a day. I think a relatively nominal fee. Um, most of them are not free. You know, the National Forest Service plows them out and grades them, takes care of them. So it makes sense to to pay a small fee, but you're not paying for a fee to use the trails. And if somebody drops you off, then there's there's no fee, and it's just the honor system. They have like little envelopes there, and you drop some money in the in the keeper box. Uh, but my point is that the trailheads are typically right at the base of the mountain, and so in some cases, Kurt, you could be going half a mile in the flat, and then all of a sudden it's all up hmm. uh, to get right up to the summit. There are a few, but I'd say uh, maybe fifteen or twenty percent of the forty-eight. Uh, Tall peaks in the White Mountains have a long approach, and by long, I would say five, six. Uh, there's one mountain I can think of, Mount Isolation, and that's about a seven to eight mile uh, approach, relatively flat. Uh, I know my son uh, hated that. <laughs> Went through that. You know, we call them the laterals, and I and I like the laterals. You know, you do a little of ascent. I like a little lateral, a little ascent, a little lateral. But the approach to Mount Isolation was just. For him, it felt like seven miles of lateral. And he's like, Dad, when, when are we going to get up? Like, I just feel like I've been hiking for three hours and I, I want more vertical. I want more vertical. I'm like, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. And then sure enough, we got to base of the cone of, uh, of isolation. Then it was three and a half hours of just straight up to the summit. Uh, but the, I would say that is an exception. Uh, isolation and Owl's Head are probably the two that come to mind the most that have a long approach. But that's you know, two or three mountains out of 48, the vast majority, you're parking uh, right at the base of the cone, which is typically a uh, maybe 800 or 1200 feet of elevation uh, is about the highest that you get in terms of vehicular access. And then the mountains you're climbing are between 4,000 and 6,500 uh, above sea level. So you've got a, a three to 5,000 foot climb in one day. You know, that's, that's fun that you bring that up. Most of the 14ers in Colorado, uh, you can start eh, around 10,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So it's a 4,000 vertical foot climb. So we're talking right. about about the same amount of climbing. It's just we get a little higher out here. Exactly. Exactly. Very true. I, and I've heard the same thing. Yeah, that's cool. There are some 14ers where you start lower, like at 8,000 feet. So you have a, a pretty substantial climb. But um, regardless... I, I think it's such a beautiful thing that the White Mountains are out there and that they are a resource that's so close to, to New England, you know, mm. that people can get out there and get their mountaineering fix in. What about winter access? Yeah, winter access is about the same. Uh, not all parking lots are plowed as well as they could. And, and there are some roads that are only open in the summer and then they close, they gate them off for the winter. So uh, you'd either uh, park on the side of one of the major uh, thoroughfares, and uh, then you put some snowshoes on or put some skins on your cross-country skis and uh, hike in that maybe uh, three or four miles to the uh, summertime trailhead, if you will, because you're not able to drive in as close as you can in the summertime. So if you're going to do winter hiking uh, in the whites, you need to be prepared to the distances might be a little longer because you have to uh, hike, uh, hike in uh, an access road that's closed in the winter. Hmm. You know, in the notes that you gave us when we were scheduling the interview, you said that you would like to talk about peak bagging as a metaphor for life. <laughs> I'd like to hear sure. what you mean by that. Yeah, um, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, and, and I'm going to tie it back to what you asked about kids. You know, I... I have the pleasure of taking new kids and, and I, and I challenge them, my older kids all the time, you know, Hey, you know, we want to go climb this, we want to go climb that. Okay. And 
who are we going to take that's new? You know, who are you going to take that's new? Give them an opportunity to sort of get bitten by the bug. And uh, so you take a new kid. We, you know, we try to take a new kid or two or three or four uh, every single time. And when you do that, you get to see the glimmer in their eye. And certainly you see the angst as they're climbing and, and you see that look in their eye like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? Like, I don't know that I can do this. You know, this is really tough. This is, oh, I'm, I'm huffing and I'm puffing and I don't know where I am and I've lost my place on the map and this is really tough. And you just, you know, you, they need to see that positive glimmer in your eye that says, I believe in you. I believe in you. This is going to be fun. This is going to be worth it. Trust me, trust me, trust me. And, you know, hopefully you're a good enough salesman that you can get them to the summit because I can tell you I, I've been blessed with, you know, a hundred out of a hundred. Every single kid that I've ever gotten to the summit of a 4,000 footer. And certainly I handpick them to make sure they've got a great view. There's nothing worse than climbing <laughs> to a 4,000 footer that's socked in with trees and, and you can't <laughs> see anything. But so you get up there with a beautiful view and you just see the smile from, from ear to ear. And, you know, you get into it with them. You say, so what do you think? You know, was that worth it? And absolutely it was. It was. It was. And I said, well, what do you think was the di most difficult obstacles? You know? And, and you can see that they're really struggling with it in their conscience. They, they don't want to admit that their biggest obstacle was doubt in themselves. Um, so for me, it is the metaphor for life. So the, I've got, uh, five, uh, boys at this point that I have gotten through all 48. I have 57 other youth and adults that I'm helping chase the 48 list. Uh, but I can tell you that the five youth that I've helped complete the list, every single one of them have experienced banging up against that wall of doubt. You know, I don't know that I can. I don't know that I can. And when you do it 48 times, Kurt, and you come out a winner on the top, at the end of that experience, you can, there's, there's no way that you can't be more self-confident, more, wise, more uh, stronger in your belief about what you can do and understand uh, that the only obstacles in life are the ones you put in front of yourself. Uh, so for me, that's the metaphor for life. And so these kids, I, I try to get this done with them by the time they turn 18 and then they go off to college and they are just stronger young adults. They're stronger uh, academic students. They're stronger in their faith. They're stronger in their families. Uh, because they feel as though they've accomplished something truly great. Mm, I love that. I think one aspect that I've noticed as well, and I think it's just exact parallel to what you've already said, but that is that when you have a particularly challenging experience and you, you get through it, then later in life, you know, we all face challenges and we mm -hmm. can fall back on that fortitude that we learned on the peaks. Absolutely. And... It's not just a matter of saying, I know I have more confidence. It's also a matter of, wow, I, I've been challenged before. I, I know that I can get through this because I did exactly. that before. You know? Exactly. Yeah, I get these kids will come back to me and they'll be like, oh, Mr. T, I have a, I have a really tough uh, English paper due this weekend. Or, you know, I have this exam that's going to be really tough. And I go, well, do you think it's going to be tougher than climbing Mount Washington? And they go, oh, yeah, you're right. It's not. I'm like, buddy, if you can climb Mount Washington with the worst weather in the world, 6,500 feet of rocks, you sure as heck can complete, you know, a history exam. Right. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. You can do it, you know, so. You can do it. I love that. You can do it. That's what they learn. Well, yep. tell us a little bit, Ray. You, you've been doing scouting now for 17 years with these kids. Yeah. Kids. Um, yeah. what is the status of scouting in America these days? What do you see is the health of it and the future of it and, and changes that are underway? Sure. Um, you know, scouting, I, I believe is a great program. Uh, the concept and the values of scouting, I think are still, uh, as sound and, and needed, uh, in our country today as they were a hundred years ago. You know, we still need youth to, to value life and to be accepting and, to uh, establish a sense of self-responsibility and a sense of faith and a sense of family. You know, I think all of those things are great and, and part of what makes our country great. 
And um, unfortunately, I, I'm not so sure that they're getting that from the school system. I'm, I'm not so sure that they're getting that from their own faiths. Um, so, so I think scouting is a great supplement to that and encourages them uh, to incorporate these things in their lives. Um, you know, but as a country, we're very diverse in our beliefs. And I think that the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts of America have struggled to find their way uh, over the last hundred years. Certainly, I think the last 20 uh, have been especially difficult uh, finding their way, finding their role in the bringing up of, of American youth. Um, but the expression that we work with is all scouting is local. And I try to just keep my eye on what I'm doing with the kids in Quincy, Massachusetts. And uh, I have arguably the most diverse group, not only in terms of ethnic backgrounds, but in terms of faith and economic status and ages uh, and genders. You know, uh, we've had girls in our scouting program for the 17 years that I've been involved. I know that the Explorers program going back to the 70s uh, has had girls involved. So uh, we've been very, very accepting uh, of all uh, genders and uh, sexual orientation and uh, any uh, background situation. Uh, as long as a kid wants to be a decent human being, then that's what I'm all about. And uh, if I can use the outdoors as a palette to, to deliver that message and, and help them learn that uh, to their core so that as life challenges them going on and, and they meet people that challenge them, um, they'll have a strong foundation to resist the temptations of making some bad choices. Hmm. Yeah, very cool. You mentioned girls in the, in the scouting program, and, you know, we have Boy Scouts, we have Girl Scouts. Um, what about co-ed scouts in the U.S.? Where are we headed with Yeah, that? sure. Uh, certainly co-ed scouting is, uh, is alive and well, I think, in 98% of countries around the world. Uh, the United States has been one of the last to uh, integrate it. So I was very pleased with the recent decision, uh, the Boy Scouts of America. I mean, we've had uh, girls involved in scouting since the 1970s, I mentioned earlier, but that has been from sort of the teenage age of about 14 uh, to 21. Uh, but now the Boy Scouts of America has said, you know what, we believe that, uh, that, that there are girls who want to do the kinds of outdoor adventure things that Boy Scouts are doing. And we want to give them a chance to, to do it. Now, we've been finding in Quincy that we've had tons of siblings, you know, a lot of boys that I've had in Cub Scouting, uh, in the Cub Scouting program, which is the sort of elementary school age, their sisters have come along and, and they're just like, yeah, Mr. T, I want to do this. I want to, I want to go hiking in the woods. I want to go fishing. I want to go canoeing. Um, and that, that isn't everybody's cup of tea. Not all girls want to do that, but I was very pleased. Uh, with the recent announcement by the Boy Scouts America that uh, gives us the authority to formally recognize these girls as members of scouting and to give them advancement and recognition uh, that they deserve. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier, I, I taught this wilderness survival class this weekend, and um, half of the group was females. And and I applauded them. I said, girls, not a lot of high school girls who who want to be sleeping out under the stars on the ground, eating beans out of a can and roasting chestnuts and having wintergreen tea, you know, so God bless you that you don't fall into a lot of the same uh, social pressure groups uh, that, you know, just want to Snapchat all weekend. And uh, so there are definitely uh, females just as much as there are males who who want to experience nature and get grounded in that and be challenged by it and, and find their potential uh, through nature and adventure sports. Yeah, that's very cool. Hey friends, it's really been fun the last couple of weeks watching the early season snow start to blanket the high peaks. Winter is on the way. Bentgate Mountaineering is ready to help get you prepared for your epic winter. Come check out the latest in Alpine Touring, Telemark, NTN, and Splitboarding gear. They have brands like Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, G3, Icelandic, K2, Technica Blizzard, Arcteryx, Mammoth, Solomon, Vole, Neversummer, Jones, and BCA. And you do need to be safe out there. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear. They have beacons, airbags, shovels, and probes, and they're ready to help you educate yourself on snow safety. They also rent out gear, so you can get your skis and your boots there, as well as your avalanche safety equipment. What's more, they also have free demo ski days at local resorts, so you can try out the latest gear. Now, how much fun does that sound? 
So swing by Bentgate in Golden, Colorado, or go to bentgate.com to find your new gear, as well as to get updates on all of their events. While doing your holiday shopping this season, why don't you drop by our site at 180tech.com and pick up a camp stove for the adventurer on your list. The 180 Stove, 180 Flame, and Bearline Plus are all made right here in Colorado and sure to make your loved one a happy camper. It's a great excuse to treat yourself to something special as well. Visit us at www.180tack.com. You don't just climb mountains with these kids. You mentioned earlier that um, it, you do a lot of different types of adventure sports. So just from your perspective, I'm curious, you've been active in the community for so long. What is the health of adventure sports in America? Mm, wow, that's a great question, Fred. Um, yeah, I, uh, I do try to backpack year-round, but I know that for the kids, I have to diversify a little bit. And not everybody... Um, likes the backpack. Like, for instance, you mentioned coincidentally Jameson McFarland, who recommended me for this show. Uh, Jameson will laugh, certainly when he hears this recording, uh, that it, camping wasn't necessarily his favorite thing. He does like the outdoors, uh, but sleeping out under the stars with bugs and certainly backpacking was not his favorite thing. But he was a fine, fine young man, great scout, great leader. Um, I'm still very, very good friends with him and his family and, and very blessed uh, for that. But my point is that uh, the outdoors and adventure sports isn't for everybody. Um, so I, I would love to say, to answer your question, 100% America is into getting into the outdoors and uh, and doing adventure sports. But one of the things I like about adventure sports is the point of entry. It's not extreme sports. We're not asking people to bungee jump or, right. you know, to, to be on the Red Bull racing team. Um, we're asking them to get off their couch get into their backyard and maybe be more adventurous and go beyond their backyard and find the local and state and national parks and, and start to investigate the amount of green space that they have uh, that belongs to them and should be a part of their lives. So I would say that the health of adventure sports is, is pretty good and growing. And I mean, in the 17 years that I've been a, a scouting leader, uh, I, I don't know if, it, if it's just, attracted more to me because as more people find out that I'm in the outdoors every single weekend, uh, then they come to me as a resource and ask, you know, Hey, where should I go hiking or where should I go camping or canoeing or what have you? Um, but I do think that it is on the rise and, um, and I'm very excited about that and happy to do anything that I can to, to, uh, to increase it. For me, the answer is inspiring the youth of America and inspiring them to bring others with them. And, and that is the key to growth. Yeah, I love it. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, one thing we've pointed out on the show before, and I mentioned before we hit record here, is that when someone plugs into a healthy lifestyle, and adventure sports can be a big part of a healthy lifestyle, then that's a generational thing. It It becomes an example for the kids, and then even their kids, and the kids after them. So it's funny we think about, well, I could just sit on the couch here and have another beer, you know, or... I could get up and go ride my bike. Right. And you think of it as a decision like that. But no, you're actually potentially could impact people for multiple generations after you by getting mm -hmm. up and getting on the bike. Why not? Why yeah. not make that a part of the lifestyle? So, well, I'm curious. I did a show on how to climb a mountain. I called it Mountain Day Hikes or something like that. I did that a long time ago, and it was primarily with a focus of uh, Colorado 14ers because that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's where I cut my teeth on mountaineering. Right. But I'm wondering what might be different about climbing where you are than here. I know that a lot of it's going to be the same, but what is in your essential kit and preparation for your climbs? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me, I'd say it's, it's all about water. It's all about hydration. Um, you know, sometimes you can carry too much water. It's the heaviest thing in your pack, but it's also the most important thing. Um, I'd say that naturally, because of our own diet, we already have enough calories that we're carrying with us. 
I don't need to carry 27 clef bars and, um, you know, six packages of shock blocks and sugar packets and candy. You know, you definitely need to back off the sugar, the simple sugars and, um, and get into maybe some of the more complex sugars that takes your body longer to, to break down. Um, a good map is always critical. You know, a compass is nice, but a lot of people don't even know how to use a compass. Uh, I'm not so sure that it's worth bringing. Uh, but it shocks me how many people will call 911 or call Fish and Game or State Police and say, I'm lost in the woods, come find me. <laughs> and and the police are like, do, do you even have a map? Do you even know where you are? And they're like, no, I have no idea. And they're like, it's getting dark. Can you come help me? It's like, well, the same cell phone you're calling me on has a flashlight built into it. Why don't you just use that? Find the trail markers and you'll find your way out. So it's this complete lack of preparation. You know, take a minute. Right. And research the trails, you know, know what the trail names are, figure out, you know, elevation gain. Am I, should I be going up right now or should I be going down? And if you're hiking on a trail that's going down, but your brain tells you you should be going up, you're probably going the wrong way. <laughs> um, so, you know, basic first aid kit. Um, you know, I, I really like a change of socks, a uh, hat, you know, a windbreaker, um, and, you know, that's pretty much my essentials kit. Okay. How about tips or tricks for climbing mountains? It seems like everybody has something that they say, you know what? People may not think of this, but when I do this, it makes it such a better experience. Yeah. Um, I would say unless you have a really uh, – sometimes we have sort of a hard time deadline to get to a particular place by a certain time. And I try to avoid those as much as I can because I don't like the pressure you know, when, when you're hiking, um, for me, it's kind of like playing golf. I don't like to play golf when I have a team right behind me and you feel that pressure of, Oh my God, I got to play golf as fast as I can. Cause I'm holding somebody else up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I would say my tip and my trick is try to know your timing, you know, figure out what your turn back time is, um, and work backwards from that and then sort of set your pace uh, with that, find the pace that's comfortable for you and, and just work that pace. Um, when I'm working with new kids, I typically do something we call it the 50 and 10 rule, which is so that we're not stopping every five minutes to pee or adjust your straps or get a snack. You're like, look, kids, just stay focused for 50 minutes. We're just going to walk for 50 minutes, five, zero. And after 50 minutes, we're going to take packs off and we'll break for a solid 10. And after the end of eight minutes, we're going to give you a two-minute warning, let you know, start to pull your pack together. And then after it's been 10 minutes of break, we say packs on, packs on. Everybody establishes their role in the column. Who's the lead? Who's the navigator? Who's the sweep? Who's the middleman? Okay, everybody accounted for? Yep. All right, let's move on. And then they know that it isn't, it isn't unknown. You know, they know that 50 minutes from now, we're going to stop again. And so they, they sort of look forward to that. It doesn't become this uh, Dayton death march for the next eight hours. <laughs> you know, they know in 50 minutes, I'll get another break. You know, it's, it's that classic story with the kids in the backseat. You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I need to go pee, you know, right. what have you. Uh, they know in 50 minutes, we'll take a break in 50 minutes. We'll take. It. And, uh, so with that structure, a lot of times kids with structure, uh, perform better. You know, that's sort of the rules of school, right? You know, the class is going to last 50 minutes and then you have 10 minutes to get to your next class. So somehow magically your bladder and your, your adjust to 50 minute time frames. So I'd say those are, those are some examples of, uh, of tips. Well, that's good. That's good stuff. I especially like that with working with kids that aren't accustomed to climbing. I've worked with a lot of kids that have done a few climbs. And they kind of know what it's going to be. They know the routine and, you know. Right. But when you're getting someone out there who's never done it before, they're kind of wide-eyed like, what is going on? You know, when is this going to stop? So I love that. Just telling them ahead of time, this is the schedule. This is how we do it. Makes a lot of sense. So what if your kids really aren't into mountaineering? You know, what other activities do you do that can encourage them to get into the outdoors and challenge themselves? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I do try to mix it up throughout the course of the year because, as you said, not every kid's into backpacking or or peak bagging. You know, a lot of times the vertical element is a real turnoff, 
and and you got to try it and you got to treat keep encouraging them but you also got to know when to sort of say uncle and, and take them in a different route and say okay peak bagging isn't for you but let's try maybe snowshoeing um you know not long distance snowshoeing because snowshoeing is very aerobic uh it really gets your metabolism going fast but the beauty uh of nature in the winter is just stunning um, and so there's a couple of uh, scenarios in the White Mountains that I like where in a mile and a half, two miles, not too bad, I can get you into a backcountry hut where we can light a fire and, and get a dinner going. And uh, then the next day we can actually summit a 4,000 footer again in only a mile and a half. So the distances aren't too bad, but you find yourself at a ski chalet where you can have a nice lunch and warm up by the fire and then snowshoe back. You know, so you kind of mix it up with those things. Um, whitewater rafting is uh, huge. Uh, the kids clamor over that every spring. Uh, we look for the, the spring runoff, uh, spring thaw. The dams are opened up the beginning of May. And uh, we'll typically do a power weekend where we do two different class five rivers in the same uh, weekend. And uh, the kids get really jazzed about that. You know, they, they come back from the first day and, you know, they feel like they've uh, been to the summit and back in terms of uh, being scared and sometimes tossed from the raft and pulled back in and they're they're sharing all of these sort of we call foxhole stories you know i thought i was going to die but i survived it we survived it together and therefore that makes us invincible i'm like all right well wait for tomorrow we're going to go do it tomorrow but on a different river uh, and one of the rivers we go on is called the dead river so the naming is just perfect <laughs> oh no we tell all kinds of scary stories about, you know, how it got its name. And uh, so we have a blast with that. So, uh, and then probably the last other high adventure piece that's very common for me that I like to do is uh, these sort of combination hiking and canoeing treks. Uh, we typically go up into northern Maine for that. We'll be gone for like a week and cover about 50 miles between hiking and canoeing. Uh, some lakes, some streams, some fishing. But the kids learn to work as a tandem team in one canoe. And we'll get like five or six canoes out there. Uh, I'm not a big fan of portaging. And, and I find at the teenage age, it's kind of tough to carry a canoe on your shoulders. But um, sometimes you need to do a little bit of that. But to see some bald eagles up live and, and in person, you know, 50 feet from you is just uh, mind-blowing. You know, you just, you're so used to seeing it on television or on a postage stamp. And when you're in a canoe staring there at a bald eagle and to see him swoop down and grab a fish out of a lake right in front of you is just incredible. It gives you a real appreciation for nature and uh, and what you can experience if you're willing to get up off the couch and push yourself a little bit. Uh, and I tell the kids that a lot. You know, They're like, wow, that's really incredible. I'm like, yeah, guess what? None of your classmates are experiencing this right now. But because you were willing to get up and push yourself – and, and get your physical body here and experience this in person, then you get that privilege. Yeah, that uh, reward, huh? Amazing. That reward, exactly. That's so, beautiful, man. Love what you're doing there. Very I, cool. I love it. I love it, too. I, I hope uh, I've been helpful for you and hopefully inspired some others to uh, consider uh, trying things. I, I would always just say you're not on your own. There's literally thousands and thousands of people who want to help others uh, experience the wilderness, you know, get on Facebook or chat groups and, and talk to other people, you know, talk to as many people as you can that experienced it and, and find the, the advice or the equipment that, that fits you best. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ray, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing with us all about the White Mountains and about scouting and about working with youth and inspiring them in nature. It's, it's stuff we love on the Adventure Sports Podcast. So thank you for giving to us some of your time for that. Truly my pleasure, Kurt. Wish you all the best and all of your listeners get out there and, uh, and experience nature firsthand. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better. Right on. Coming up on Thursday, we'll have Bill Thornness talking about cycling the Pacific Northwest and West Coast of the United States. Hey, before you run off, why don't you join our Facebook group for the Adventure Sports Podcast? Just look it up. You can chime in on other people's adventures and post your own. And consider helping to support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. There's a link at the top right-hand corner of our site as well. Now until the next episode, get out and have some fun.